Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In this episode of our classroom, I am joined by Kareem Farah. He is the CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. Kareem and his team train and support teachers who seek to redesign their classrooms around blended, self-paced, mastery-based learning to better meet all students' unique needs. Kareem spent his teacher career as a high school math educator in Hawaii and Washington, D.C. He earned his undergraduate degree from Washington University in St. Louis and later received a master's degree in secondary education at John Hopkins University. With us today, Kareem Fada. All right, y'all. Welcome back to our classroom. I am here today with Kareem Fada. And correct me if I enunciated that the wrong way. Oh, you did it well. I like that. Thank you. Well, I just got back from Egypt. I know you did. I, I just got did. back from Egypt, and you shared with me that you are Egyptian. So this this is like the perfect time for me to get right back into the Our Classroom podcast because I'm hype off of my Egypt trip, having learned so much, a lot of relearning and a lot of cleaning up the stuff from textbooks as opposed to what I experienced firsthand. So I'm bringing my Egyptian enthusiasm to this interview. Uh, Shokran for being here. Shokran. I love it. I love it. My very basic Arabic that I picked up (laughs) while out there. Uh, But yes, thank you. I appreciate your time and I'm looking forward to learning from you this afternoon. So uh, why don't we just start by you telling me a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, uh, before we dig into our topic here of emotional dysregulation. Yeah, happy to. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be on here and to be able to share you know, whatever insights I may have about emotional dysregulation and just like changing classroom practice. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. It's a nonprofit I founded in my own classroom back in May of 2018 that I did not think would grow uh, to the size that it is today. Um, The organization is really committed to scaling a student-centered, equitable instructional model that replaces the one-size-fits-all kind of live lecture styles of teaching that that still seem to dominate a lot of classrooms across the country and, and that I don't think create the on-ramp for success for most students. Um, so we train educators on this novel instructional approach. We designed this in- instructional approach in our classrooms in D.C. public schools back in 2016 when we were trying to figure out how to meet our students' needs effectively. Um, and it worked. It worked well. Um, and now we scale it today. Kareem, why don't you tell me a little bit about your model before I dig into some of the questions that I have laid out here? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing we as educators realized was that when we stood at the front of the room and delivered live lectures, it was the worst use of time. It was where most of our behavior issues would happen. The vast majority of students didn't feel like their needs were being met. You had students who were academically struggling and needed more time. You had students who were ready to move on to the next lesson and were bored. You had students trickling in who were late. You had students who were absent. So we first started with this assumption that live lectures are a poor use of time. And let's build our own little bite-sized instructional videos to replace direct instruction. 
from there, we realize when you do that, students can work at their own pace. You can you can create a world where some students are on lesson two, some are on lesson three, and some are on lesson four. So we started to run these self-paced units. We would self-pace for one week, two weeks at a time. And that created the space for mastery-based grading or competency-based grading. So instead of students transitioning from one lesson to the next based on day of the week, they transition from one lesson to the next based on actual mastery or competency of a skill. So that's the heart and soul of the model. It, it doesn't rely on any one curriculum. It doesn't rely on any specific ed tech tools. It is truly a new methodology of teaching that anyone can do and one that's designed to maximize uh differentiated one-on-one and small group discussions between teachers and students. I mean, that's really the core of why we created this instructional approach. You know, when, when some folks come across such instructional approaches, they might think that it's limited to a specific group of students, whether we're talking about low-income students or students of color, or it's for students who are simply in public schools. Talk to us about why that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, there's it's not the case for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's not the case because it, it literally isn't true in that there's thousands and thousands of teachers who do this and they do it at ridiculously high income private schools and they do it in different countries and they do it in, in charter schools, public schools, private schools, big districts, small districts, rural, urban, suburban. So where our teachers are implementing is evidence enough that this is not for one student population. I think the second reason why is this instructional model is rooted in best practices and teaching. Like the best things we can do as educators is work with students in one-on-one in small groups. The word differentiation is the most overused and under-executed term in education, but it's also probably the most important, which is that I have a group of students in front of me. They have emotional needs. They have academic needs. And the only way I'm actually going to support them is if I can connect with them on a one-on-one small group basis, address any errors and understanding they have, and support them in growing their understanding and, and building a stronger depth of knowledge. This model is designed to maximize those moments, right? So that's not for any one student population. That's just how learning, in our opinion, should really happen. Thank you. Thank you. And can you briefly just bring me into the classroom experience? So I am a teacher at a district that has partnered with the Modern Classrooms Project. And, you know, today I'm going to be implementing some of this stuff. You don't have to bring me through the whole school day, but just give us a synopsis of what the classroom looks like when using this model. Yeah, well, the first thing everyone should think of is controlled chaos. It is the definition of controlled chaos. You will walk into a classroom, bell might ring, teacher might open the classroom with a brief discussion. Not a brief discussion that I'm lecturing, maybe just a conversation about how we're going to use our time effectively, what's the game plan for the day, maybe some spiraled content or a little activity, and then they're going to release the students for self-pacing. The students will have some methodology of knowing where they're at. It might be a physical tracker. It might be a little game board that says, hey, I'm you know, Kareem. I'm doing lesson three today. And it'll also indicate somewhere in the classroom what the on-pace lesson is. If you're if you're following the pacing guide correctly, if you're using your time effectively, you should be on lesson two today. So if I'm on lesson three, I'm ahead of the game. If I'm on lesson one, I'm falling behind. And if I'm on lesson two, I'm on pace. At that point, the educator is going to go to their teacher station, not some desk in the front of the room, but some desk centrally located in the classroom. And that's the, the place where they're going to spend a high percentage of their time calling students down one-on-one and in small groups who need support on a particular lesson. So 20 minutes into the class period, what you will probably see is a teacher station with four students. They might be working on lesson three because these four students struggled with one skill on lesson three. Then you're going to have a group of students 
watching instructional videos because they started a new lesson. You're going to have another group of students tackling the activity for a lesson. So actually working through kind of applying what they learn in the instructional video on the task. And then another group of students taking the mastery check, which is that end of lesson bite-sized assessment. So it's kind of four core activities going on at any given time. And then it's constantly moving, right? So when I'm done doing my small group one-on-one instruction, those kids are released and they might go watch instructional video, work on activity. And another group of students are going to get called down based on the data I'm seeing about their performance. And that's how a modern classroom would run. And are the instructional videos created by the educator in the classroom, or is this part of modules that MCP has created? We don't have anything we house or own or anything like that. So we train teachers to build their own instructional videos, and we coach teachers on saying, look, when you deliver direct instruction, it's always better if it can be you. The, t- the students are going to feel more connected to you. You know the content better. But we also know that that can be a real workload. So a lot of times, some teachers will build all the instructional videos. Some teachers will build a portion of them and then outsource them and pull from YouTube and other curricular resources. And other teachers will collaborate with their peers. So I'll build one video. My colleague builds another one. My colleague builds another one. So some element of the educator's voice is in those instructional videos. And that can be everything from all of them to 25% of them. You, you know what I love about the model is that it reminds me of the Montessori approach. I have some experience in Montessori schools, and I I didn't know much about Montessori until I started working at a school where I was part of a a startup. And I'm looking at the approach where you, wait a second, like, whoa, we're breaking up these kids into different groups, and some of them are working individually. You have kids on different grade levels, all in the same classroom, different age levels, grade levels, and, and there's just beautiful blend right? And doing blended learning. This this beautiful blend of learning, of pace, of instruction, where we're meeting students where they're at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it's for. And in some ways, it, it creates a little bit more structure than the Montessori model, because I think the Montessori model is frequently a whole school model. And it can feel really intimidating for one educator in one district to implement. And I don't even know that it's possible to do it that way. Our model is kind of a version of that, but it's a little bit more structured and a little bit more implementable for any educator anywhere. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I know part of what inspired creating MCP is addressing the challenges that you were experienced as it relates to emotional uh, dysregulation. Well, excuse me, the challenges you were seeing from students as it relates to emotional dysregulation. What is emotional dysregulation and why is this topic important to you? Well, where I taught, um, students certainly were experiencing a large amount of trauma. Um, And if there wasn't active trauma in their own lives, there were also challenging discipline circumstances that would happen within the school building that would kind of be hard to just digest. And then they would walk into our classrooms, right? And you could tell all the time that a portion of students were really struggling. They were struggling in a way that extended far beyond any mathematics. They extended far beyond anything that we needed to teach in that any, any given class period. And the traditional approach to instruction creates a dynamic where a student's emotional dysregulation is viewed as a distraction from teaching and learning or actually an inhibitor for the rest of students' learning. So when I'm trying to deliver my live lecture and a student comes into my classroom five minutes late, they may have been meeting with the counselor, they may have had something challenging go on at home. 
they look visibly upset. Maybe they come in and put their head down. Maybe they look like they just cried. Maybe they're experiencing anger that they can't control. In a traditional setting, I'm going to try to call that student out in front of everybody. I'm going to try to quote unquote de-escalate and kind of put the spotlight on this student. And I felt awful every time doing that. Like I knew, logically speaking, this is an atrocious way to address a student's really challenging social emotional needs. And it's the only out I have. It's the only thing I can do because I'm this conductor at the front of the room. And if I don't take care of this issue, then it might get bigger and it might stop everyone from learning. And we essentially create this kind of decision tree where either the educator does something that's probably not best for that one student to help the rest of the students, or the educator spends a ton of time with that one student at the expense of the rest of the students learning. And that all starts with this idea that students are experiencing a lot of emotional dysregulation. And that emotional dysregulation has spiked even more recently with kind of the long-term effects of COVID. So in some ways, our instructional model was built both out of the reason that we have students with academic needs that aren't being met, but also this idea that to even talk about academics, we need to ensure that we create safe spaces where teachers can actually support the social emotional health of students and appropriately de-escalate students when they're emotionally dysregulated. And the way I define emotionally dysregulated is you're just experiencing some sort of Uh, life event or emotional kind of internal experience that's causing you to feel out of sorts. You could be angry, you could be sad, you could be anxious, right? There's a ton of different ways that this comes to life, but it usually means you're probably not in the best headspace to be digesting new content and tackling new academic skills. Right, right. And so when when we're thinking about emotional dysregulation in the classroom, and I agree with all that you said, and I've experienced that tension also of Wow, I have to address this. I have to keep the class moving forward. You know, I I don't know how else to address this, but to call the student out. There's definitely some rub there. And so we we know that can be disrupted to the learning environment. How can we effectively support students that experience the emotional dysregulation while also ensuring progress for all in the learning environment? Well, I mean, the first thing you have to do, no matter what, and I think we one way to that I always say it's easy, easy to kind of digest what we theoretically would want for a student, separate of what we can actually do. We know that the task at hand of having a large number of students in one room with one teacher is just a very difficult thing to do. It is the hardest thing to do, in my opinion, for a career uh, that there is. But let's just start with like the workplace. If you had a colleague who was emotionally dysregulated, who clearly was visibly upset, who was having a tough day, we wouldn't rush them through any set of tasks. We wouldn't go into their face and say, get off your phone and get focused, right? Mm. What we would do is say, hey, are you doing all right? Like, what's going on? Do you want to have a conversation with me outside? Is there something you want to share, right? So the first step is trying to really figure out, hey, is the student actually experiencing some form of emotional dysregulation? Is there something they want to share with you? That's kind of step one. Step two is, de-escalating. If the student is experiencing a high level of emotional dysregulation, how can we make them feel a little bit calmer in the space? And then the third piece is how can we get them to re-engage in the work? Like ultimately we want them to be re-engaged in the classroom work so that they're moving forward academically. And 
you kind of go through those three steps and for every student, it's going to look different. And there's kind of a fourth step, which is, hey, the student's experiencing something so much bigger than something I can handle this classroom. It's time to call in additional supports, a counselor or someone else to get involved because they really need those, those additional supports. But built into that entire process is one-on-one -on -one interaction. Like at its core, we overcomplicate what it means to support a student experiencing emotional dysregulation because what most educators don't have at their fingertips is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, right? We try to come up with an alternative solution. We try to come up with behavior tools. We try to come up with expectation setting and all this kind of stuff. When ultimately, if a student's really sad or really angry, your best shot and moving them past that and moving them into the rigorous work that you're trying to do is to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. The only way to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation is to create a learning environment where my one-on-one -on -one conversation from with a student doesn't disrupt the rest of the classroom from tackling coursework, right? That's the core issue. And I often describe our model as saying, hey, by creating a modern classroom, students have greater control over their own learning and less control over their peers' learning. And by creating an instructional design like that, now I can do that one-on-one -on -one discussion without causing the rest of the class to collapse. So the the setup for the classroom through this approach supports being able to continually keep students engaged in their self-paced work, self-guided work, while also allowing for the teacher to be able to have these check-ins, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or small group. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And even I used to use a strategy, particularly with emotionally dysregulated students, and I called it, it's not a particularly inspiring name, but I called it the step outside strategy. Um, you know, I was teaching high school students. And as you know, frequently when a student behaves in a way that perhaps isn't ideal, we might ask that student to step outside of the classroom. And I realized, A, every time I did that, everyone knew it was some sort of conflict, right? So there was like, oh, you know, he's getting, he's, he's going to have a conversation outside. So early on in the year, I started to ask kids to step outside when they did good things. Mm. So just, a, just completely debunk this idea. So a student would do something and they'd nail it. And I'd be like, hey, can you go step outside? And they'd be like, why, Mr. Fair? Like, I didn't do anything. And I'd be like, how about you just trust me for a second and step outside? And then we'd have a conversation and I'd say something actually positive and motivational, like come in with a big smile on their face. So then I started to kind of change the understanding of what it means to step outside. Step outside just means I want to have a conversation where not everybody else is, is like hovering over us. And then I started to use that strategy when students were emotionally dysregulated. If you were really struggling, I'd say, hey, just come step outside with me. Like, let's just have a quick conversation outside. And what was so cool is I could do that and the learning environment wouldn't stop. Right. So you, it's not just having one on one and small group conversations, but you can actually pull yourself right outside of the classroom and trust that the students can still move forward with content every single minute of the class period. I like that in a way of changing the narrative of what it means to call a student out. Right. You're you're calling them in to affirm them so that when you have to call them out, you know, there's already been a lot of buildup that then gives them the trust to, yep. you know, walk into the situation and be like, all right, you know, we could have this conversation because he, the, the teacher is not only trying to converse me, with me one-on-one -on -one when I'm doing something wrong. Yep. Totally. And so how is the modern classroom project different? And you've touched upon this, but I'd love for you to elaborate. How's it different from 
other blended learning models, what are the strengths of MCP and, and what are the growth areas? Yeah, I mean, I think what's different about our model is I think the most common comparable would be flip learning, right? There was this big flip learning craze for some time. And flip learning just basically said flip the learning experience. Don't talk at the front of the room. Turn those into videos. Video, students watch those videos at home during that's their homework. And then they come in and they all work on lesson two. And there were two core problems with that, in my opinion, to scale it, which is that first, the expectation that all students would be able to go home and watch an instructional video, given what we know about the various environments that our students come from, is just an unrealistic expectation. They might not have technology access. They might not have a quiet space, like all those kinds of components. So, A, there was like an equity issue there, like the expectation that some students would and would not be able to watch those instructional videos as it was real. The second piece is it wasn't actually fully benefiting from the larger goal, which is to create self-paced learning and to create competency or mastery-based grading, right? So if you just flip the learning, but every student has to learn uh, lesson three the next day, it doesn't address this idea that some students need more time on a scale and some students are ready to move forward. So that's probably the closest comparable that you could see in the space to our instructional approach. Um, what is unique about us, and I think what makes us particularly compelling to a lot of educators, is we we aren't providing any tech tool or curriculum. Like there's not an infrastructure that you need to do this. But instead, it's just an instructional model that you can learn and apply in any context. We have an entire school in Zambia that does this model. We have tons of teachers in Australia that do this model in Peru because it is a methodology of teaching that you can use with any learning management system, with any curriculum, with any type of device. So it really can be customized to any environment. And I think that's our greatest strength, the highly customizable model that is really practical and educators can apply. I think the, the areas where we can continue to improve are making the on-ramps to implementation even easier. What structures and systems can we provide educators to make the transitioning from a traditional learning environment to a modern one smoother? Are some of them curricular supports? Are some of them more templates? Are some of them more planning tools? Are some of them more learning programs and professional learning experiences? Because what we know is teachers who do this model love it and say they plan to stay in the profession longer and feel revitalized in their profession. But what we also know is about one in five to one in three teachers who get the opportunity to do this model choose to do it. We're an opt-in only model. So we don't force educators to implement our instructional approach, even across all of our district partnerships. So we're we're touching about 20 to 30% of teachers in any community that we go into. And in really cool partnerships, we might get up to 50, 60, 70% of teachers. But there's a portion of teachers that still go, I don't want to do this. And of the group, some of them are saying because it's too hard. It's too hard to take on. It's too much work. A portion of them are saying, I'm not aligned to the vision of the model. That group of teachers, that's that's a whole another ballgame. That's going to be a much diff that's a much more challenging task. But for the group of teachers who want it but don't feel like they can do it, we know that there are different systems, structures, tools, resources we can provide to make this an easier experience for educators. Help me understand what they're expressing as the barrier is it creating the videos that's hindering them maybe mm -hmm. they're they're not as adept with the technology or maybe they just feel like it, it creates a much heavier workload with creating all of the videos what what what, what are the barriers so I think you've highlighted a lot of them. I'd say that the three big ones are one, the barrier of 
workload and building out the instructional videos and reorganizing their classroom on their learning management system. Because ultimately the workload comes in, hey, I got to I got to translate my lessons into instructional videos. I got to provide guided notes. I got to have a nice Google Classroom or Canvas or Schoology organized. And folks that haven't been doing some of that work for some time, that's intimidating. It's like I'm redesigning my course. So there's the workload part. There's a second piece where just educators are a little bit afraid of releasing control. I mean, to create a student-centered classroom, you need to give students greater autonomy over the learning experience. And that freaks some people out. Um, so in some ways, it's like, I want to do this, but I'm afraid to do this. So that's a little bit less to do with workload and more to do with like, can I really just let my students be self-paced for five straight days and me be a facilitator? Um, and that just takes like trust that takes seeing it that takes hearing from other educators to believe that that is that is really a what's best for students and b possible and then i'd say the third thing which has been less challenging certainly kind of in the era of post-covid is when they feel like their admin's not on board like ultimately when you're diving into something new you gotta feel like you can take some risks you're going to have some bad days in there. Like controlled chaos isn't going to be controlled. It's going to be complete chaos, right? Like you got to you gotta operate within a certain element of I'm trying something new, so I'm going to be pretty bad at it to start and I got to work through it. And if every time something doesn't go right, you panic and regress back to traditional practices, it's going to be a long road and it's going to be one where you probably never convert your classroom environment. And one of the best ways for an educator to feel comfortable doing that is when their admin says, no, go do it. Like, take that risk. I expect this to be messy early on, but I imagine that, you know, when you get comfortable with it, the outcomes for students are going to be better and the outcomes for you are going to be better. And not everyone has those conditions in front of them, whether it's because we haven't spoken to their admin, so their admin doesn't know about it, or their admin isn't quite on board yet and like has a set of competing priorities that that would make them feel like this isn't the focus. So then what, what are the three simple steps you would offer someone who's new and they're willing to try this on. Maybe it's their first year teaching. Maybe it's their fifth year teaching. They have some reservations, but hey, you know what? I'm going to try this on. What are the three simple steps you would encourage them to take as a way to not just wet their feet, but understand that we want to build a sustainable approach? Yep. So first things first is commit to piloting it. Like just commit. I'm going to do five lessons, one week self-paced. My students are going to listen to lectures. They're going to watch instructional videos. I'm going to give them a little game board and I'm going to see what happens. Commit to doing it in a small pilot. There is no one who doesn't have the capacity to pull off that one pilot. Because one of the things I always tell people is once you taste it and see the benefits, you're either going to be attracted to it and want more of it, or you're going to go, this isn't for me. So you got to commit to doing one pilot right first. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that's kind of addressing the workload piece. Like just do one, one pilot and feel it out. And the best way to learn it is through our free course if you don't have funding. There's a virtual mentorship program that comes with funding. It's $750 a teacher, all that kind of stuff. But we're a nonprofit, so we don't have any paywalls to protect our um, content resources and templates. Like there's not a secret template we give away when someone pays 50 bucks. None of that. So the free course, learn.modernclassrooms.org, 55,000 teachers are in there. Like you can literally learn the whole model in this course. So go to that free course, pilot one unit, see what happens, or pilot one five lesson burst of self-pacing. When it comes to living in fear of, of students, 
um, kind of being in control of the learning experience, just challenge your assumptions. Like, I think actually one of the, the ways to set the lowest possible expectations for students is to not believe that they can be self-directed and self-regulated learners. Mm-hmm. I also think it's the most dangerous thing we do as an education system is to cultivate a bunch of students who are used to information hitting them in the face in highly structured learning environments. And then suddenly they graduate at 18 and, hey, FYI. In college, you go to 15 hours of class a week, and that's it. And there's going to be parties everywhere, and there's going to be cafeteria everywhere, and everyone's going to be working a side job. Like, what is that? That is such a sharp shift from K-12 education, or you're going to go into the workforce. And in the workforce, let's be real, that's a cutthroat environment. You either perform or you don't perform. And if you don't perform, then people tell you you don't perform. And if you keep not performing, you don't have the job anymore. Right. So we've coddled students through our K-12 education system for years. And then once they graduate, we go, good luck. And that's not what's best for students. So the earlier we can trust that they can be self-directed and self-regulated learners, the better for them. And if they're not good at that, that's the reason to double down on it. Because if they're not good at that, that's probably more important than their ability to divide fractions. Being a self-directed learner and a self-regulated learner is critical. And then on the third piece. You know, there's kind of two approaches with admin. My preferred approach is just say to them, this is what I'm doing and this is why. I can't meet all my students' needs effectively. You know it and I know it because every admin knows that, right? Every admin knows that they're not, we're not actually differentiating. So I want to run a test unit to pull this off. And here's why, and here's my rationale, and here's I'm going to execute it, and here are all the resources from the Modern Classrooms Project to check out. And usually admin will go, give it a try, like let it fly. Um, so those are the three kind of actionable steps I would suggest folks take. I mean, the middle one is more of a philosophical step, but the first one and the last one are actionable. No, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I hope y'all are paying attention. All right. So if you had an opportunity to have lunch with an innovator in the realm of education, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, you know, I really, really right now would like to speak to the person who created ChatGPT. Um, That's a good one. And the reason why is I think we're looking at a moment in time where it feels like there's this existential threat and massive multiplier all coming at, at, at us at once. And I think a lot of us wake up in the morning and go, wow, this AI stuff could make things really cool. And then we also wake up and go, wow, AI could be like the thing that destroys us. And I just kind of want to really talk to the folks that developed that and and get a feel for what they think the impacts could be on K-12 education. Because I think we hear about ChatGPT and then it's filtered through the lens of all these other players who are taking it and making it their own. But I'm kind of curious about the original creators of it. Like what what were their intentions and how do they think that can change learning? Um, Because I think on one hand, people people think that like one day we're going to wake up and students are just going to learn through an AI developed program. Um, And then there's folks like myself who think that AI has the capacity to make teachers planning lives easier and unleash their capacity to do the things they need to be doing all day long, which is working with students one-on-one in small groups, building relationships and supporting them through academic mastery. So um, right now that's who's on my mind. That would be a fascinating conversation, I'm sure. All right. So to those that are listening, what is the message of encouragement you want to offer them? Well, I think the main thing I want to say is I've been out of the classroom now for um, 
three years. Um, I've led this organization this entire time since I left the classroom. There is no doubt in my mind that the hardest thing I've ever done is be an educator. So the first thing I just want to say is affirm that reality because I don't think that's affirmed often enough. I actually recently shared a piece about how I think that educators, uh, the, the more you leave the classroom, the more you realize just how poorly the rest of the world understands how hard that task is. Like, it's this fascinating thing where everyone's like, oh, yeah, teaching's hard. I'm like, yeah, but do you really understand how hard it is? Like, do you understand what it means to have between 25 and 150 students with all these diverse needs? And somehow you're supposed to work with them 181 days of the year. And they're supposed to come out with more academic skills and feeling good about them. It's just a wild proposition. So all the educators out there just know that, like, what you do is one of the hardest and most challenging things out there. The second thing I'd say is, Doing one of the hardest and most challenging things out there using old practices that have existed for 100 plus years is probably not the way you're going to move the needle for students long term. Um, and that there are all other ways to run a classroom. So if you're frustrated and you're burning out and you're like, can I keep doing this thing any longer? Try to take the leap into innovative instructional models because that's what we had to do to stay in the classroom and they worked for us. Um, so just know that there's hope and there's ways to pull this off out there. Um, and also just know that what you do is is really some of the most incredible and challenging work out there. And frankly, like there are ways to make it easier, but at its core, it's going to be a hard job no matter what, um, because, you know, supporting students is a hard task. Teaching is tough. Teaching is tough. Stay the course, my people. We appreciate you. Kareem, where can folks follow you if they want to learn more about you, more about the Modern Classroom Project. Where can they follow you? Yeah, so website, www.modernclassrooms.org. That's our website. I mentioned this free course. Like I tell every person on the planet who's curious about our model to go there. That's learn.modernclassrooms.org. You just sign up and you're in there. There's also a Facebook group with around 15,000 teachers. It is a buzzing Facebook group that folks can go to. It's the Modern Classrooms Project Facebook group. And then um, at this point, most of my thought leadership lives on LinkedIn. So you can just go to my profile on LinkedIn and, and, and follow me or send me a message or however it works. I still don't really entirely understand the process. Just know that if you're an educator and I see that you request to connect, I automatically click accept because um, building a network of educators is the most important thing to me. Um, so those are, those are the best ways to do it. Awesome, awesome. Folks, there you have it. Check out Modern Classrooms Project. Kareem Farah doing some wonderful work. We are learning how to support our students in ways that sustain teachers in the classroom, but also ways that build up the skills that our youngsters learn to guide themselves to so they could be self-paced, so they can uh, be motivated to, to, to work on their level, uh, whether their level is higher than the rest of the group or maybe a little bit lower than the rest of the group. But we're not approaching everybody the same way. All right. So check out the Modern Classrooms Project. And as Kareem mentioned, there is a free course to start out. There's your introduction. Free is for me. So y'all already know. Go get it now. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Much appreciated. And best wishes with the Modern Classrooms Project. Looking forward to seeing that continue to grow and blossom. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, 
for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.